Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. The show is a proud media partner for the 11th Annual Media Excellence Awards, which are produced by Access Entertainment in Los Angeles, California. The Media Excellence Awards are recognized as the most influential awards show, honoring innovation and leadership in all things mobile entertainment, lifestyle, and technology. For more information on how to submit to these awards, please visit MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Dan Tari and Naveen Jain, who are working on an open source blockchain protocol project called Tari. Guys, welcome to the show. Hey, Kevin. Hello, Kevin. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm like really, really fascinated by what you guys are doing kind of selfishly. But before we kind of get into all that fun stuff, let's get to know each one of you a little bit better. And Dan, maybe let's start with you, kind of maybe give a bit of background on yourself, some career highlights, and kind of how you got to where you are today. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Great. Happy to be on the show today. Um, I've known my counterpart on this uh, lovely uh, uh, podcast, uh, Naveen Jain, for over 10 years. I met, him when I, was, I met him when I was at Ticketmaster okay. um, in the ticketing space. Um, you'll, you'll hear that Probably for the last 17 years, I've been in the event ticketing space and kind of began in San Francisco back in 99 when I graduated from Kellogg Business School and came out to San Francisco. I thought I was going to be a, a banker, an investment banker at Montgomery Securities. Did that for a quick two years and then the whole dot-com one was blowing up all around me and um, it, was a, it was a fascinating time to be in the Bay Area. And of course, like everyone else, I, I went off to... Uh, uh, seek my fortunes in, in the, uh, the internet space. And I was always a huge music fan. So I, I, I joined a company called Ticket Web in uh, very, very early 99 because okay. I loved music. And they happened to be ticketing a lot of music clubs uh, in the space, uh, in, in the Bay Area. And uh, I was like, God, I, I understand that space. And I understand. Sounds like a very good application of, uh, you know, online e-commerce, et cetera. So I joined that business uh, about a year and a half later, we sold that to Ticketmaster uh, uh, for about thirty-five million. And back wow. then, it was that was a huge sum. Uh, well, it still is founders. to be fair. It, to be fair, <laughs> fair, I was not one of the I was not one of the the original guys, but I was a hired gun. And then I I went on to uh, run that business as well as a couple other businesses for Ticketmaster for seven years from about two thousand to two thousand seven. Okay, um, which was which was a great time. Um, still in the Bay Area, but spending a lot of time all around America um, signing music clubs to the Ticket Web platform. And then in 07, uh, 08, broke away from Ticketmaster. Um, my work was done there. They really didn't want to invest a whole lot more in the brand or the platform. So my opportunity to build things and build new features and tech was kind of over and it gotcha. petered. So it was time to, time to find a, a new feeding ground. And, and uh, long story short, I, I co-founded uh, a company called Ticket Fly, sure. which was uh, which was another you know it was basically a next gen ticket web um, that would integrate 
you know, marketing tools and mobile, be mobile optimized um, and take advantage of the social web more than ticketing platforms here to here, you know, here to, you know, um, here to four had been, they were really inventory management systems and we really wanted to make ticket fly into a marketing platform. Gotcha. And so we did that and, um, uh, built that for many, many years. And then in 14, we, uh, we sold that business to Pandora for uh, a, a much larger sum of 450 million. Um, so everything was bigger about ticket fly and, um, that business has since traded hands, uh, to Eventbrite. Right. But yeah. And so, so during this time in 07, I met Naveen, um, super smart guy, always kind of, I call him the intellectual hustler. And, uh, the guy's, his mind never stops. And he's very, very adept at, um, kind of keeping his eye on many balls, not just one. And, um, he came to me last summer and we talked and he kind of was my personal sensei on briefing me on blockchain technology and particularly how it could help um, man issue and manage digital assets in a more effective manner okay. um, to do a couple couple things like just keeping um, economic the economic value um, of, of the key participants um, for example in, in, in say just the ticketing space um, when a promoter issues a ticket um, there's a lot of leakage on the on the on um, the uh, the back end in the secondary market. And so anyway, long story short, he talked to me, he, he was, he briefed me on blockchain and ca captured my attention. And what started off as a kind of a consult, uh, kind of a, a friend helping a friend, just advising quickly turned into a uh, co-founder role on the, on, on the Tari project. And so here we are today. Very, very cool. Um, Veen, do you want to maybe give a bit of background on yourself and, and kind of your, your upbringing and your kind of career highlights because you've done a ton of stuff as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and cool. uh, I studied computer engineering at Purdue. Uh, I was only there for a year. I dropped out. Interesting. Uh, and uh, what, I just, what made you drop out just out of curiosity? Uh, you know, there were many factors. Uh, okay. I just, you know, I, it wasn't, frankly, it wasn't like the best time for me. Like it wasn't a good fit for me. Uh, number one. Gotcha. And number two, I just, really wanted to get focused on building things I had a lot of ideas very cool and uh you know i just needed an outlet and i didn't feel like frankly school was the best outlet for me uh so uh i started my first company uh which was called spark art okay and uh spark art originally was a digital agency so we started building websites for companies primarily in the bay area and gotcha. I bootstrapped that company. So I went out and signed our first company or uh, customer agreement, uh, which was like a $10,000 web development contract and built the company up to a multi-million dollar business from there. So we didn't- Wow, that's great. Any, we didn't, early on, we didn't raise any, uh, any money. And then uh, I got involved in the music business actually uh, totally serendipitously. So I went to go see uh, a perfect circle play a show at the Warfield in San Francisco. Okay, and, very cool. And out front, there was uh, a bunch of people handing out sampler tapes for new bands. And one of the tapes I picked up was for the rock band Linkin Park. Okay, and, interesting. Uh, so I, I just fell in love with the band. I thought they were going to be huge. And I went home and I did a who is on the domain. And it just so happens they didn't have domain privacy set up at the time. And so okay. there, was, there was a real phone number actually registered. So I just called the number. And the, uh, the brother of uh, one of the singers of Linkin Park actually picked up the phone 
and I pitched them. And long story short, I, I started working with Lincoln Park and running all their web properties. So I ran their website and their fan club um, and just really helped them with, with digital marketing. And Very cool. SparkArt transitioned from doing more just general web development work and digital agency work to working with artists. So we ended up working sure. uh, with Bon Jovi and The Killers and Little Wayne and many, many, many other artists over the course of um, the company's history. And SparkArt still exists today and it's, it's still a very successful business. And then uh, I started my second company, which is actually in the logistics space. Uh, so it's a fulfillment center uh, located in the Atlanta region. And we started that company because we were running online stores for artists. We just really were struggling to find a fulfillment center that was a combination of good and inexpensive and performant. <laughs> and right. uh, so we just decided that, hey, we, we can't find one that really suits our needs. So we're just going to build our own. And so uh, I bootstrapped Click Here with uh, two other folks. And Click Here Today is also a very successful multi-million dollar business. Um, so then I started uh, angel investing in startups. So I've invested okay. in over 30 companies to date. Wow. I've had a lot of fun working with many different types of entrepreneurs. So that's been really, really uh, a fun um, activity. And then I founded a nonprofit or co-founded a nonprofit called Immunity Project um, that's focused on developing a free HIV vaccine. And we ended up um, having the opportunity to go through Y Combinator. Uh, so that was also really... Uh, fun experience. I learned a ton about building organizations, building companies. And then fast forward today, um, you know, I, I started thinking about, um, you know, new things in the, in the blockchain space. I originally started off as a miner for Monero, which is okay. a uh, pretty well-regarded cryptocurrency project. It's a privacy-focused cryptocurrency project uh, about three years ago. And um, I just thought there was a real opportunity in the digital asset space. So I started thinking about ways to pursue that and got in touch with Dan and got in touch with Ricardo, um, who's our other co-founder. Ricardo is actually the lead maintainer of Monero and one of the core developers. Um, and we started Tari together. And that brings us to today. Very cool. Now, the, the thing that I find kind of fascinating about kind of both of you is I kind of grew up like my day job. I work as a chief design officer, a startup up in Canada. And like I learned a lot of kind of my design stuff, kind of building band fan sites or kind of doing projects for, for local bands for, you know, free, basically free access to their shows. Right. So it's for me, the whole space is kind of fascinating because I learned a lot of this as well, just kind of, you know, either doing stuff as a fan um, or, or just kind of, you know, doing it and trying to hang out and just play in the music space. Like, I played drums in a kind of just a bunch of crappy local bands, um, you know, throughout my kind of teenage early twenties. But so, so I love the space. I, I'm fascinated by the space. But you guys quickly covered what exactly Tari is. But but for people that haven't heard of it, what exactly is it, and and how did you guys decide to kind of finally set this up and and kind of do this open source project? Sure. So um, Tari is a digital assets focused protocol project. Um, okay. So what does that mean? So basically sure. it's an open source um, protocol that ultimately uh, is permissionless. So ultimately anyone will be able to issue digital assets um, on, on, on the Tari blockchain. And so okay. the reason why we're building Tari, so the purpose for Tari to exist or the reason for Tari to exist is that 
there are many circumstances uh, in different, around different types of digital assets where consumers have a terrible experience and the issuers of digital assets also have a terrible experience. So let's give you some real world examples. Um, so in the, ticket, in the ticketing context, so if you think about a typical concert ticket, uh, what is the user flow? So a user goes to a traditional ticketing company, whether it's a Ticketfly or Ticketmaster, they buy their ticket, um, and, and then you know, they use that ticket to get access to the show. Well, sometimes they want to resell that ticket. So sometimes they can't go, or you know, whatever the reason is, they decide to resell the ticket. So today, typically they use a third-party marketplace, like a StubHub or a Vivid Seats or whatever, right. similar to that. And, um, and the user experience is, is atrocious because yeah. uh, when you go to resell the <laughs> ticket, um, these marketplaces tend to charge very high fees. So the average fee is you know, between 20 and 25% split between the buyer and seller. Um, when you're the buyer of a resale ticket, you don't necessarily even know that the ticket you're buying is actually going to work. That's why a lot of these marketplaces offer some sort of a guarantee. So it's like, hey, in the event your night is ruined, don't sure. worry, <laughs> at the very least, you're gonna get your money back. It's like, okay, well, gee, thanks. Thanks for screwing yeah. up my entire evening. So, so you, you, may get your, you may get your money back, but you lose your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so there's this like crazy, crazy clunky experience uh, from the consumer perspective. And then from, mm -hmm. the, from the ticket issuer perspective, um, if you are a promoter or you're an artist, so if you think about how the industry works, someone is taking all the risk to put on a concert. And usually that's sure. someone called a promoter, right? So the promoter yeah. is the one who's paying the artist, they're renting the room, they're really doing all this hard work and putting all this money on the line, they're marketing the show um, to make the show happen. And for them, uh, when their ticket is sold the first time, there's a whole sort of intricate set of, uh, of you know, economic splits and whatever else that happens when a ticket is sold. And that's all right. good. That you know generally works. It's a little clunky, but that generally works. But then when the ticket is resold on a marketplace, they get nothing, right? So sure. and, yeah. and for some for some artists, you know, for some shows, if it's a really hot show, you can have a huge percentage of the tickets available for resale in the secondary market. I mean, I've worked with artists where for certain shows, you know, upwards of 30, 40 percent of the tickets are being resold on you know a secondary market. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and so the secondary market is actually a $15 billion market worldwide. So wow. from, from their point of view, they're sitting here going, okay, this is, this is crazy. We're taking all the risk we're putting on the show. The artist is taking risk as well. And they don't even get to participate when the tickets are resold. And then there are other issues too, you know, so, you know, there are all sorts of other rules um, that ticket issuers would love to be able to set. So for example, say you have a show that's like moderately selling, it's not, maybe not selling super well. It's not quite sold out um, when the when the show actually starts. Uh, yeah. You may want to set a rule where you say, okay, you know, 24 or 40 hours before the doors open, uh, I really, really want to turn off secondary market sales. I really just want people to come to the primary, buy tickets directly for me, so I have more unique people in the room. Because uh, oftentimes there's multiple revenue streams around shows. It's not just the ticket revenue. There's also the okay. car. There's also concessions. There's merchandise. There's parking. So the more unique people you have in the venue, that's actually how you maximize the overall size of the pie, right? Um, sure. And so, so there are all sorts of things like that that are, are, are really clunky in today's world uh, from a ticketing perspective, both from a consumer standpoint and then also from 
a, a ticket issuer standpoint. It just so happens that what I just described uh, from both the user standpoint and from a ticket issuer standpoint uh, is also true in other digital asset verticals. So if you think about video game, the video game industry or other industries um, where people are issuing digital assets, um, there's, there's similar types of problems from the consumer perspective and from the asset issuer perspective. So that's why we said, okay, hey, this is really interesting. Why don't we create a, a protocol that is totally maniacally focused on digital assets? So in the blockchain space, there are many, many different types of protocols, sure. but there are two larger buckets of protocols, right? So there's protocols that are more, more focused on a monetary use case, like a store of value or a medium of exchange. So obviously things like Bitcoin or Monero, Litecoin, Zcash, um, you know, these are good examples of, of protocols that are really focused on a store of value or a medium of exchange use case. Yeah. And then there's um, a large bucket of protocols that are focused on decentralized applications. So um, these types of protocols are things like Ethereum or Definity sure. or Neo or uh, Tezos or EOS. There's a whole bunch of protocols that are focused on essentially decentralized applications. Uh, what's really interesting is that uh, when you're building something as complex as a blockchain protocol, uh, invariably there are trade-offs. So you have to kind of decide what you want to be when you grow up, or you have to steward the project in a way uh, to decide like where ideally it's going to end up. What is it really going to be used for? What is it going to be good for? And so what we realize is that there's this interesting middle ground where um, if you want to build something that's not quite as sophisticated as a decentralized application system. So maybe it doesn't support a Turing complete programming language and it doesn't quite have all the bells and whistles of a decentralized application system, but it definitely supports non-fungible tokens, things that are unique, um, you know, versus say a traditional monetary uh, protocol system uh, or monetary protocol. Um, then that's actually a really interesting thing because you can actually build something that is really scalable, that is truly decentralized, that's permissionless, um, and have it be focused on a, on, in a market that's gigantic. Like digital assets are a huge, huge market. Like tickets, for example, alone, just live event tickets is a $67 billion market. Um, wow. In-game items is like $50 billion plus yeah. and growing rapidly. So these are like gigantic markets. And you can sure. build a protocol that's maniacally focused on just digital assets. And that's, that's what Tari is. That's what our, uh, our vision is for Tari. So, so maybe this is kind of a stupid question, but why would you guys build this open source? Yeah, so, so that's a really good question. So at the end of the day, um, it's really interesting. If you think about traditional corporations yeah. and how traditional corporations have evolved over time. Yeah. So at the end of the day, if you are, uh, and we're obviously in the US market, so you know, sure. Uh, yeah. If you if you create a Delaware C corporation, which is that most corporations in the United States market are Delaware C corporations. Okay. Um, what are the what are the guiding principles of most Delaware C corporations? Well, the goal is you really want to benefit the shareholders of the Delaware C corporation, right? Right. And so you you really want to do everything you possibly can to benefit the shareholders um, of of the corporation. So, uh, but sometimes that creates misalignments of interest. So, uh, so let me give you some really interesting examples. So uh, sure. let's take a large drug company, for example. So what's happened, uh, I think globally, but 
let's just say the U.S. market because I have a little bit more data on that. Uh, what's happened in, in the U.S. market um, in the pharmaceutical industry is you have these giant drug companies that are publicly traded, um, and their job is to drive earnings per share, right? Because the more they drive earnings per share, the more they are able to reward their shareholders, the more the share price will likely go up, right? Right. So what do they do to accomplish that goal? Well, they do all sorts of things. Like over the last couple of decades, what they've done is they've generally cut their research and development budgets uh, and they've increased the price of drugs, right? Which right. makes sense. It's like if you cut the R&D budget and therefore more money flows to the bottom line and, uh, um, and you increase the price of the drugs themselves, then of course you'll generate more revenue. Well, okay, so yeah. that's really interesting. So who benefits when a big pharmaceutical company does that, right? So uh, the shareholders will most likely benefit, maybe the board of directors benefit, maybe even the employees benefit because they can pay higher wages. But who actually gets screwed? Mm-hmm. The patients. Yeah. The patients get screwed. Yeah. Right? Totally. Okay, so so let me give you another example. So let's take a large social media company who shall remain nameless. Uh, <laughs> but I'm sure you could probably get <laughs> yeah, the the, um, the one I quit recently. <laughs> uh, so so let's take a large social social media company. Okay, so exact same sort of thing, right? So Delaware C yeah. Corporation, publicly traded, huge corporation, um, you know, massive number of users. Okay, so what is their agenda? Their agenda again is to drive earnings per share. So sure. um you know, they, and they do that through any means they possibly can. In this case, they pump their users full of ads, right? So they do everything right. they can to pump their ad users full of ads and they do everything they can to use their users' data to their advantage to drive more targeting for advertisers, right? That's how yep. they create value for advertisers. And they're totally shameless about it, completely, yep. utterly shameless about it. Only when someone gets mad at them, they say, oh, we're really sorry. And that's just generally yeah. the, how this organization has operated since inception, right? Sure. Okay, so who benefits in that scenario? Again, when the earnings per share goes up quarter after quarter after quarter, and it's just a superstar performing company, so every quarter, of, invariably, EPS is generally going up. So who benefits? Again, the board of directors, the shareholders, the employees, but who gets screwed? Sure. The users. The users yeah. get screwed. So at the end of the day, the problem um, with building something like what we're building is that we, our number one job is to earn trust, right? That's our number one job. So how do do we earn trust across a wide range of constituents? So we have all sorts of different types of constituents that invariably will be interacting with the TARI protocol, right? So we have users and end users, we have uh, digital asset issuers, we have miners, we have cryptocurrency traders. We have all sorts of people that are going to be interacting with this, with this ecosystem. We're really creating an ecosystem. So our agenda is to really earn trust by, uh, across all of these constituents as much as humanly possible. So one of the best ways to do that is to make the project open source, right? Because then, sure. it's, and then it's not about, hey, do we really trust Naveen, Dan, and Ricardo? Like maybe you do, maybe you don't. That's fine. But if you don't trust us, okay. In fact, don't trust us. Go on GitHub or, or whatever and look at the code base yourself. And now you can see for yourself exactly how the system works. And you don't even have to ask us any questions. The code is all there and it's well documented. It's well put together. So, so the, the goal here, if we really want to change the digital assets world on a go forward basis on a, from a macro perspective, we need to work really, really hard to earn trust 
And one sure. of the best ways to do that is to make Tari an open source project. Interesting. Very interesting. So how do you guys plan on monetizing this? So, so that's a really interesting question. So our agenda is Tari is a new type of economy, right? So, sure. um, so at the end of the day, uh, digital asset issuers are going to be issuing their, uh, their digital assets on the Tari blockchain. Um, you know, consumers will be buying these digital assets and, and they'll be sort of transferring these digital assets from party to party. Um, and, and there's sort of a cost to all of these things sort of happening, right? Um, yeah. And we're not charging a rent of any kind. Um, right. we're, we're responsible for stewarding this open source project. Yeah. Um, but we're merely stewards, right? So we don't own Tari either. Tari is a community, it's an ecosystem, it's permissionless, it's open source. And it's sure. highly, there's a highly permissible license. So if people don't like what we as stewards are doing, they can simply fork the project and go take it and run with it in any way they so please. Yep. So at the end of the day, the way we ultimately uh, are able to create value, and this means creating value potentially for ourselves, but also for the ecosystem overall, is sure. to earn as much trust as possible so that as many digital asset issuers um, as possible want to issue their digital assets on Tari, and therefore as many consumers as humanly possible uh, want to actually uh, buy and transfer digital assets um, on the Tari, across the Tari ecosystem. And as a result of that, the network grows, right? So we benefit right. when the network grows because there is a Tari economy, there is a sort of monetary unit within Tari. So the more sure. the network grows, the more valuable Tari becomes as a network, and therefore we stand to benefit as the network grows. Interesting. Yeah, it, it makes it makes a lot of sense, and it's actually really quite fascinating to me. So I'm I'm curious then before we kind of dive a little bit deeper into Tari, I want to kind of did you guys. How are you guys like, are you funding the project? Are you guys self-funding? Are you just community funding? How, how is this kind of paying for itself? Because there is kind of overhead costs for all this stuff. Yeah, so that's a really good question. So, so what's happened uh, in this space is that um, lots of different types of investors have right. come to similar conclusions as we have about... Uh, how you can leverage trust to create value. And yep. this isn't a new idea. So if you think about it, like the best brands in the world, the absolute best brands in the world, do everything they can to build trust around their brands, right? So it's, the, it's a typical sure. thing. It's like a money back guarantee or, hey, you know what? Like we're gonna go the extra mile for you because we just, you know, something bad happened, you know, like we're all human. So something broke in, in our world, whatever the world is, and we're going to go the extra mile for you, our customer, because we value our customer, right? So sure. at the end of the day, this whole idea of leveraging trust and earning trust and therefore creating value is not necessarily a new idea. Um, however, what is new is being able to leverage uh, a decentralized uh, permissionless, distributed, permissionless, uh, sorry, open source uh, type of project to earn trust and therefore create that kind of value. So, so what's happened is a lot of traditional event investors like venture capital firms, et cetera, have decided to start making investments in this market um, around projects like Tari. So we're yeah, actually funded 
uh, by traditional venture capital firms like Redpoint and Trinity and Canaan Partners um, and uh, Blockchain Capital and Pantera and, and many, many others. Sure. Um, and, so, and so the bet that they're making is that uh, the three of us, given our you know, very diverse backgrounds, but yeah. pretty, pretty deep experience in our respective fields, yeah. uh, will be able to steward this open source project um, sure. and, and earn enough trust by all these different constituents uh, that people really, really want to issue their digital assets on the Tari blockchain and therefore consumers want to participate in this ecosystem and that we're going to build a network that becomes one of the biggest networks in the world. So that, sure. that is really the bet that they're making um, with respect to the Tari project. Yeah, interesting. Because I like I'm even a part of a, another open source project right now, kind of that's um, a big kind of U.S. corporation is kind of building themselves, um, and and obviously opening it up to the community. And it's interesting to see kind of a big enterprise actually putting money into backing an open source project, partly to kind of take on some of their competitors in in the same kind of space that the open source project's playing in. But just seeing that kind of mind shift towards open source project in kind of enterprise and the VC world. For me, it's kind of fascinating because it's a way different business model. And in a lot of cases, and personally, I believe that you could make just as much potentially more money than the traditional, like charge everybody for everything. Right. Totally. I mean, there's so many wonderful, um, super high impact open source projects. Mm-hmm. You know, look at projects like Apache and Linux, yep. and, you know, sure. SQL and, you know, whatever other, other open source projects. I know some of those have been co-opted, but um, you know, there, there's really, really interesting open source projects out there. And some of them are, are industry leading, right? Yeah. That they are the leader in that particular space uh, versus some closed source uh, piece of software that was developed by a traditional corporation. So I think the same is true in our market. I think, I think that's, we obviously believe, we have all the bias in the world, but we believe <laughs> that that's where the digital asset market is moving. And the more we can create a trusted, uh, open platform for digital assets, uh, the bigger the digital asset ecosystem actually will end up being, and the more successful it'll actually end up being for everyone involved. Sure. Thanks for listening to Building the Future. This show is heard by more than a million people monthly in over 15 markets worldwide, including Silicon Valley. Kevin Horick's guests are leading business owners, successful entrepreneurs, and merchandisers worldwide. Now, your brand has an opportunity to tap into this dedicated and active group of business people who are looking for places to invest and the right opportunities to support. Find out how you can get involved at buildingthefutureshow.com. So you guys have kind of talked about um, a few kind of digital assets, but I just want the listener to be 100% clear on other kind of different types of digital assets that they could use Tari for. Do you you want to give maybe some more kind of concrete kind of examples? Because I I think ticketing is really good and kind of in-game stuff, um, but there's a ton of other things that people could build a business around and use Tari. Right. So one of the things that's really fun about a project like Tari is that um, we ultimately don't even know all the things that it could be used for. Interesting. So sure. We have, we have a number of ideas. So yes, tickets are an interesting use case, in-game items, 
digital collectibles, things like trading cards, anything that, sure. that is digitally scarce in that way um, is a really interesting use case. Loyalty points could be a really interesting use case. So I think at the end of the day, our perspective is let's build something uh, starting with something we know. So okay. obviously given the makeup of the Tari team, we happen to know tickets pretty well. Right. Tickets are, are actually a really interesting place to start because tickets are unique digital assets um, that have very interesting attributes. So what are some of the attributes of tickets? Uh, so they have complex rule sets. They have multiple economic participants. They're temporal in nature and they absolutely demand scalability, right? You can add, yeah. you, it's mm. very common for there to be a show where there's far more demand than there is supply, right? Yeah. So, so our belief is that, okay, if we are successful building a general purpose digital assets protocol that works really well for tickets as a use case, it will likely work super duper well for many, many, many other use cases, most of which we haven't even thought of. Interesting. Um, but we know that based on those constraints that I gave you, um, that it, it will work really well for in-game items and really well for digital collectibles and really well for loyalty points. And each one of those markets are multi, multi, multi-billion dollar markets. So our, the other thing that I've always learned um, and we've always learned in terms of building startups is let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, right? So let's, sure. let's, let's stay focused on you know, step after step, brick by brick um, kind of approach to building something like this. And then you know, we think that uh, ultimately, once Tari exists, um, that people will come out of the woodwork and go, wow, okay, that's really cool what you guys did with tickets or really cool what you guys did with in-game items or really cool what you did with, with uh, digital, uh, digital uh, collectibles. That's really cool. I have this amazing idea and we'll go, whoa, we didn't even see that coming. That's amazing. Totally. Right? Yeah. No, that, I, I think that's what has always kind of fascinated me about the entire open source kind of community is you can kind of do anything and everything you want with the different kind of projects. And sometimes people like mash a bunch of them together and, and create something that like you would never come up with yourself, but like, you're like, Oh man, that's brilliant. Right? Totally. I think the key to the whole thing though, is that restraint is super important. Like you have to choose what you are not going to do. And that's sure. just as important as choosing what you are going to do. So okay. in, our, in our case, in the blockchain space, one of the things that's happened uh, is people are trying to build these protocols that will do absolutely everything, right? They're, right. they're great for decentralized applications. They're infinitely scalable. They can do a trillion transactions per second. You know, they can make you levitate, right? They can make you do anything, <laughs> anything I love under the that. sun, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the problem with that is that's just simply not true, right? That, sure. like, that kills trust. Yeah, like that, that's, that's untrustworthy, right? So sure. our, our approach is like, okay, no, let's just, look, let's stay focused. We have a vision. We happen to know a digital assets use case super duper well. I mean, Dan has sold over a billion dollars worth of concert tickets in his career, well wow. over that. Um, you know, I've sold a lot of concert tickets myself. Sure. We do have members of our team that are, um, you know, really tied in with the digital asset, other digital asset use cases. One of our 
advisors is uh, is John Pleasance, who's the former chief operating officer of Electronic Arts. So we do very have cool. people who are very involved in other digital asset use cases too. And let's just stay focused there. You know, let's let's really stay focused on digital assets. Let's do everything we can to make that use case work super duper well. And then if if other people want to take the Tari code base and turn it into something completely different, great, go for it. Sure. You know, like enjoy and and anything we can do to support, we are happy to support. I yeah no I I love it I I think it's it's totally fascinating to me and it's interesting though to have kind of more and more open source projects getting a ton of publicity, right? And I think it's great. I think it's kind of much needed, but how do you guys kind of see the space and kind of why is it so important? Like, I know you've kind of covered it throughout our conversation, but for other people that maybe still don't really understand the open source kind of blockchain space do you want to maybe talk about kind of why it's important today and why it's going to be kind of massively important going forward yeah so um so something that i think everyone can understand is that uh when you give your data to a third-party company you lose control right right um when you give your money to a bank you're entrusting the bank uh to hold on to your funds for you. Sure. Um, but there are many circumstances where that trust is eroded, right? So, sure. um, you know, something could happen where, uh, you know, the bank gets hacked or the credit card company gets hacked and then your money could be stolen. Um, or, you know, like in the U.S. market, we have um, an infamous, infamous company here called Equifax. And <laughs> Equifax has to be one of the worst companies in existence. Because what have they done? You know, they've, they have data on pretty, on, my understanding is most Americans, and I think a lot of people internationally as well. Sure. And, you know, according to news reports, their entire database was leaked, or the, a large portion of the database was leaked. Right. Uh, so, so now, and, and a lot of people don't even know that yeah. their data was stored in, in the Equifax database, because these kinds of companies exist. They're data brokers, right? Yeah. So... I think ultimately, and this is also one of the reasons why Monero exists, right? So what is Monero? Sure. Monero is a privacy-focused cryptocurrency. So it's, it's okay. different from Bitcoin because 100% of the transactions on the Monero network are default private. So unlike Bitcoin, you don't know what any individual address's balance is. So people don't know how much money you have. And people don't know where you're sending money to or people don't know who's sending money to you. And so, right. you know, why, is, why are these kinds of things important? Because at the end of the day, this is about the power of the individual. This is about giving you the tools, you the individual, the tools to have full control over your data, your money, your digital assets. Right. And that's, that's the fundamental shift that I think is happening. So we've run this experiment now as a, as a species. As a species, we've run this experiment of, oh, let's just trust third parties with our stuff. Let's just yep. do that. Let's just see what happens, guys. We're just going to give it a shot. We're going tr to trust these random third parties with our stuff. And then time and time again, the trust is breached. It's eroded. We yep. should not be trusting these organizations with our stuff. We should not be trusting them with our money. We should not be trusting them with our data. 
We should not be trusting them with our digital assets. And so, and, and the funny thing about it is if you go back in time, people generally didn't trust these organizations, right? Like sure. with, yeah. pay, with paper money or with people's collections, they, they covet their collections. They'll put them under the mattress. They'll store them in their, yeah. in their basement or in their attics. Like people yeah. are very good at saying, okay, these are my valuables. I really want to be in full possession of those valuables. So I think we're moving to a world, moving into a world now where, um, where privacy is definitely becoming more important. People are starting to understand the value of privacy. They're starting yeah. to understand the value of being in control of your own assets, whatever those assets may be. And in, in sort of a, uh, a blockchain-like ecosystem, that's exactly how it works. Like you are in charge of your private key. Unless you decide to give someone else control of your private key, like an exchange or somebody else, you sure. are in control. And now that poses a whole slew of challenges. There's security challenges, there's usability challenges. It's certainly not user-friendly today in any way, shape, or form. We have a long way to go. Yeah, it's Maybe kind of awful actually right now. Unless you're kind of pretty technical, you, you, it's, you almost wouldn't get into the space right now. Is totally. that fair to say? Yeah, I, look, we, we say it's the first inning. Again, that's a very mm. US-centric thing to say. That uh, makes sense. But we think that it's the first inning in the space because it is generally so difficult for the average consumer to use. But that's changing. There's so yeah. many wonderful developers and, and designers and entrepreneurs who are working on solving these you know, very challenging, really user experience oriented problems. Sure. Uh, so and I think invariably they will be solved. Um, but yeah. yeah, I agree. So at the end of the day- It's kind of like anything, right? Yeah, of course. So yeah, of course. So yeah, so long story short, that's. That's why we think um, blockchain systems are, are really so interesting is it's all about a new way of thinking about trust. Okay, like who do you trust with Monero? Well, there's, there's no company behind it to trust, right? It's a open, right. permissionless, distributed, decentralized network, right? So, so ultimately, and it's open source, right? So you can go and, and, and look at their, at their repo and see yeah. the entire code base yourself. So if you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to trust my all of my money uh, in Monero. Yeah. Well, okay, then you don't have to do that. That's up to you. But there are lots of people who are choosing to do that. Lots of people choosing to uh, to put money into Bitcoin or put money into yeah. Monero or put money into other uh, cryptocurrencies because they're like, oh, wait a minute here. This is actually a different way of of managing my worth, my 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 net worth. Um, so I think, and then also the the, the ability to send money cross border is huge, yep. right? So, so the fact that there's no middle person, there's no rents to be charged. So if you want to send money around the world, you don't have to pay you know, some you know, intermediary a huge fee. You can just send it and it costs you very little. So there's all sorts of things um, that are benefits with respect to these sorts of networks. And that's why we think they're going to be such a huge deal. They're a huge deal today, but why they're going to be an enormous deal uh, going forward. Yeah, and I think the thing that we struggle with a bit in North America is we're so heavily reliant on kind of the big kind of banking system, where in some countries, they've never had really a big banking system. Like being able to pay their neighbor in some sort of digital currency is now like a reality where before it was kind of hard, right? Or just having kind of them having currency that could be used anywhere else on the planet or i was reading an article 
um, a while ago about like, I think it was, they were saying like Starbucks is the number one kind of global like payment platform right now because of like their app. And it just like, yeah, I see you load it with traditional currency, but it works in so many different countries. If you just like scan your phone, paying for your coffee, and maybe that's like kind of a, a bad example of kind of, you know, kind of a big corporate America. But I think the point I'm trying to get across is like, if you think about not if you had some company or or not a company but like a bunch of services that you use that are free or pretty inexpensive that kind of just you handled and it just worked kind of globally you know and and the closest thing i can think of that people would understand is like if your paycheck went to starbucks or if your paycheck went to amazon or apple or google or like some sort of other third party or open source thing and you didn't have to get your money from a bank and it just kind of worked globally is kind of a really interesting concept to me, right? Because like Amazon has physical kind of grocery stores now, obviously they'll ship you stuff. And, and I, I know I keep going to these big corporate examples, but I think that's when I'm having this conversation with people that don't, aren't really technical and don't understand the space. Can, at least for me, they, they, they kind of start to understand like, you're right. Like literally if my paycheck went to Amazon and I know I could go to Whole Foods and I could pay with my phone or they would just know who I am at their go stores, or the stuff I needed just like showed up in my house or was in my fridge automatically, they're just kind of like, wow, like I never really thought of a world like that, right? Like, do, do you know yeah, what I'm I mean, trying to get at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what you're, what you're getting at is, is, is how does something catch fire? How does something become a standard? Um, yeah, And, and yeah. Starbucks, Starbucks is part of so many citizens, world citizens' daily routine. So essentially when you load your card, uh, you're essentially loading it with Starbucks dollars. I exactly. mean, it's not quite like that, sure. but that's kind of what it is. And, and they have voice and they have, they have your attention, uh, your regular attention. Uh, Amazon will too. I think that's part of what's so exciting about creating a protocol focused on digital assets because it's such a good use case for blockchain technology that, sure. that sure. We're, we're excited about you kind of, we lay the groundwork, the train tracks for digital asset issuers like Electronic Arts or Blizzard or yeah. Ticketmaster uh, or CTS Eventum in Europe, the largest, you know, the, we kind of, we lay the groundwork for enterprises to adopt the protocol and then they have intense relationships with millions of consumers. And so in a way, there's an opportunity for, for us to hack network effect um, by building a blockchain specifically for digital assets. Sure. Um, well, well, and, and, I think, and I then think on the consumer end, though, so just, you know. Yeah, yeah, keep going. On the consumer end, I think there's like incredible opportunities to improve the overall user experience. So one of the things that's really interesting today is that if you have different types of digital assets, um, they're usually siloed into yeah. individual companies' applications, right? Yeah. So it's like, oh, I have, you know, a bunch of like skins or whatever for this game. I have a pair of tickets, um, yeah. you know, I have like, you know, some trading cards or whatever. And, and, and these things are like in these silos and you may have worked really hard for these things. Like, so maybe you sure. paid money for them. Um, maybe you made them, you spent a bunch of time with some editor, like making them, you made them yourself or, sure. uh, you know, you farmed them. Like if you, mm -hmm. you spent a boatload of time, you know, like killing NPCs or whatever, 
uh, and earning enough gold in the game, whatever it is, to totally. buy your, your dream skin or your dim, dream, you know, weapon or whatever it is. Um, and so, so at the end of the day, it, it really does become a part of your net worth. Um, yep. And so, so imagine a world where uh, the digital asset issuers really want to issue digital assets on something like Tari uh, because they can set whatever rules they want around their digital assets and trust that those rules will be enforced across the yep. network. Totally. Um, and then, um, and then other parties, other people, you know, it could be you, it could be some other entrepreneur goes, Oh wow, that's really dope. There's all these amazing digital assets that are issued on the Tari blockchain. And I want to create an, an application that enables people to have all of those digital assets in one place. Sure. And why well, trade them, right? Potentially. And, and, Sure, and trade like them. I could trade a character for tickets. Sure, hypothetically. Hi hypothetically, yes, but but here's the Kevin. Let's just say, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. The, the the trick behind that whole thing, though, is that that only happens if the digital asset issuers' rules are respected. So let's get like take a in-game yeah. item for example. It's like, oh, I have this particular in-game item, and only level twenty players can trade this particular item or transfer this particular item from sure. player to player. Well, that's cool. As long as those rules are generally being respected, and yes, there are ways to, you know, like there may be some leakage or whatever, but generally are being respected, then that's where the digital asset issuers go, oh, wow, this is really cool. A, there's probably more money here because, wow, we can monetize the secondary market in ways um, that are really important to us. Um, B, we can set rules that make sure that, you know, the, the hard won game mechanics we've designed or whatever um, are, are protected. So we don't have people like gaming the system in, in strange ways. Um, you know, we can kill black markets. We can just destroy yeah. them. We can say, okay, totally. black markets, we can kill fraud. So, wow, we know that this particular item is a legit item because it's, it's, it's provably that item, right? You know, yeah. cryptographically provably that item. Um, totally. So these are the kinds of things that we think are really interesting. So that's where there's massive opportunity for the issuers and there's massive opportunity to improve the user experience for consumers. Sure. Dan, Dan, were you gonna say something? Well, yeah, no, I was gonna say, you know, one way to look at Tari is, is, is we're building a system and a, and a network that offers freedom as a feature. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so there's control that Naveen was described about. We are offering the enterprise an opportunity to put rules on things. They already have rules, right? They already yeah. have rules that you can't trade. You can't trade my items except inside my walled garden. Mm -hmm. But but the consumer would prefer freedom yeah. to use to use or sell or trade the assets that they've spent literally hours and hours and hours down their mom's basement um, earning and yeah. spending money on. I mean, it's you know say in-game items um so it's this balance between giving enterprises control and respect for their ip and all of their hard work but also offering the consumer the freedom to um to play and trade with the things that they've earned and, sure. and spend good money and time for yeah it almost like puts because the thing that's interesting about the whole kind of banking space right now like it's really just a number in a bank account, right? Sure, yes, like we we need it. We need a certain amount to like buy the things we need day to day. But like, at the end of the day, like if you put twenty thousand hours into something digitally, and I want to buy that with something physical, and you want something physical that I have, like why can't I have your digital item and I give you my physical item, right? right. Like, but but 
that I think a lot of people don't understand that like f there's a lot of physical or sorry digital items that people have spent maybe more time than they they have creating something physical right and i think the marriage of kind of the the online and physical world has kind of yet to happen from kind of like a trading physical kind of cash whatever exchange perspective is is do you guys kind of agree with that or, or am i kind of off there no, I, I think that at the end of the day, any item you have that you've acquired, whether it be a physical thing or it be a digital thing, the more we can give you the freedom to transfer that item with other sure. parties for whatever, whatever you want, yeah. um, the, the more freedom you're creating. I, I love that word that Dan used, the more freedom sure. that you're, you're giving to the user or the consumer. So yeah. at the end of the day, as we said, Tari is an open source, permissionless, distributed, decentralized, or will be, uh, you know, all those things network. Um, sure. And, you know, it's still very much in development, still very early stage. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, we want to enable freedom on, on both the consumer end and on the issuer end, um, far beyond what exists today with traditional centralized systems. That's our goal at the end of the day. Interesting. So if people want to get involved, how can they get involved in Tari? Yeah, so, um, you know, Tari is a community-driven effort. So there are lots of ways for them to start to get involved. We, as I said, we're very early stage. So sure. this is at the very beginning. This is sort of like the ground floor, if there's if there a thing. Um, so we have um, a Telegram channel, so they can just okay. search for Tari on Telegram, or they can join um, our channel on IRC. So we're on Freenode. Um, you know, there's a there's a Tari channel and a Tari Dev channel. Um, we have a subreddit, so they can just search for Tari on Reddit. Uh, and then we have this really really cool thing um, called, called Tari Labs University. Okay. So one of the things that we think is really challenging about the blockchain space today is knowledge transfer and education. So there are many, many people who really know how this stuff works, right. but it's a pretty small population compared to the much broader population of developers, designers, economists, you know, others who are interested in blockchain systems. And so we had a challenge um, uh, within the Tari Labs organization that we were trying to solve, which is anyone who starts to work on Tari, you know, they, they're coming from diverse backgrounds. They may right. not know um, you know, the latest and greatest thinking around how um, various second layer scaling solutions may work or whatever is happening right now within the blockchain ecosystem in terms of, you know, the, the latest, the bleeding edge developments. And so, um, so we created this, uh, this open source uh, curated set of materials that anyone can access. It's just, it's on GitHub. You can just go search for Tari Labs University um, and uh, basically, it's an open source set of educational materials, uh, and and anyone can contribute to them. So, like, we don't claim to know everything. We don't know everything. I can just tell you that categorically. We definitely don't know everything. Sure, that's uh, great. And uh, we're we're an open community, and anyone who wants to learn about how this stuff works, wants to know how it could be applied to digital assets, wants to know how to build a system like this that that you know hopefully will be scalable. Um, you know, all of these sorts of things. Um, they can go look at the materials that we're putting together um, on, on our, our GitHub repo for Tari Labs University. And we're 
introducing new content every single week, right? So every single week we're introducing new content and, um, and people are uh, responding to it. We're getting a great response. So people are submitting uh, comments or, uh, you know, suggestions or, Hey, this is incorrect or, you know, whatever people are giving us all this great feedback. And ultimately we think that this could become a really awesome set of materials for people to learn about how blockchain systems work. Um, so that's, those are like a handful of ways for people to get involved at this very moment in time. They can also just visit our website and sign up for our mailing list. And obviously we'd love to keep people up to, up to speed. So our website is just tari.com. T-A-R-I. Yeah.com. And one kind of final question you guys have, you guys are kind of based in Oakland and Johannesburg. Is there any kind of rationale between picking those kind of places? Cause they're pretty opposite kind of globally. <laughs> yeah, actually we're, we're Oakland, Nashville and Johannesburg. So let's, Oh, really okay. Very cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, it's really funny. Um, Look, Tari is a decentralized project and it's a mm-hmm. project. So we thought, okay. Why not be all over? Well, why not, why not be distributed? Like it's a yep. distributed project. There, there are contributors out there that are going to be from all over the world. We already have contributors from all over the world. Sure. So do we really all need to be in one place? Um, so Dan is in you know, the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm sure. actually primarily in Nashville. Um, and then Ricardo is actually from South Africa and lives in Johannesburg. So, Got you. Uh, so you have three founders uh, of this of this open source project that live in three locations, and hence why you know the Tari Labs organization is split up into three cities. I love it, boys. But we're out of time. So I I know you just kind of gave a bunch of URLs, but let's close with mentioning where people can kind of get more information again about you guys and kind of get involved. Look, let's keep it simple. Just visit tari.com, T-A-R-I.com. And all the links are there. So if people want to participate on GitHub or Telegram or IRC or whatever, um, they can, they can find all those links on tari.com. And you guys are hiring a bunch of people. We are definitely hiring a bunch of wonderful people, specifically wonderful designers, um, communications people. Yeah, like anything that people are really passionate about. If people are passionate about blockchain technology and digital assets, um, we'd love to hear from them. Perfect, guys. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thank you very Thank much you. for having us. Thanks, guys. Okay, bye. bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.